This is Alex J. Aguiar, and you are listening to Pod With Me. Ready. You might have heard that on August 4th, there was a huge explosion in Peru, and it caused at least 220 deaths, 7,000 injuries, 10 to 15 billion in property damage, and left an estimated 300,000 people homeless. But there is a light, and that light is Ellie Balant, an LGBTQ HIV activist living in Beirut, and he's going to tell us his story of survival. Get ready, because the pod starts now. I just remember waking up to this very, very loud bang, like nothing I've ever heard before. I mean, I've heard gunshots. I've even heard a lot of explosions in my life living in Beirut, um, even airplane bombings during war, but this was not something normal. Uh, the house was shaking. There was so many screams and the sound was just, I, I can't even describe how loud it was and how scary it was. I remember I jumped from my bed, I landed on the, on the floor and I was just screaming. Ready. Let's go. Roll sound. Hi, Ali. Welcome to the pod. Tell us, how are you doing? Hi, Alex. I'm, I'm okay, as, as okay can be. Ellie, you are an activist for LGBT rights and for people living with HIV in uh, Lebanon. The last couple of weeks have been really, really difficult due to the massive explosion that occurred in Beirut, and that is where you're based at. What were you doing when this happened? It was around six on a Tuesday afternoon. Um, I was I was napping. Um, my partner was at the gym, and I just remember waking up to this very very loud bang, like nothing I've ever heard before. I mean, I've heard gunshots. I've even heard a lot of explosions in my life living in Beirut. Um, even airplane bombings during war. But this was not something normal. Uh, the house was shaking. There was so many screams and the sound was just I, I can't even describe how loud it was and how scary it was i remember i jumped from my bed i landed on the on the floor and i was just screaming on the top of my voice because i i literally thought that the building next door just got demolished or bombed or you know fell down as as i rushed to the balcony i saw um the huge balcony window which is of course all glass it was pulled out of the cement and just fell on the floor, completely shattered. And as I went outside, I was so very scared, panicking. I look and there's glass everywhere uh, on the streets. People are on their balconies. There are people screaming. There's people covered in blood. And, you know, it was like, what should we do? Was this an earthquake? Should we go out to open spaces? Is this a bombing? Should we stay indoor? And as I look up, uh, in front of me, the building in front of me, from behind, I could see this strange big cloud of orange red smoke. And honestly, I was I was even more scared at that moment because I thought that this this was come some kind of like poison bomb or you know a chemical bomb, and we just felt it, and now we're gonna get you know in touch with the fumes. Um, I tried calling my partner, tried calling my parents. Lines were disconnected; nothing was connecting, but thankfully there was internet and my partner called he was having a breakdown 
as was everyone else. Um, my parents were fine. Everyone was physically safe. Um, and I was lucky that most of my friends are physically safe, but not our houses, not our feelings, not our beings. It's, it's been really something scary. And the next day I went down to closer to the seaport uh, to check out what's, what happened to the city. And it was one of the saddest things I've ever seen. It was really post-apocalyptic. Glass everywhere, broken cars, people bandaged, and not so well because hospitals were overwhelmed. They were just, you know, trying their best to help as many people. And in the area that was highly affected, there are four hospitals that were almost completely destroyed. So they were evacuating patients, you know, and there was different level of patients and care. So they had to, you know, care for everyone. And it was really just very, very chaotic, very sad. And the sadder part is that, you know, the first few days we were really just in shock. I, we couldn't eat, we couldn't sleep. And, you know, right, it's still until this moment, everything triggers us. If I'm sitting down and a window closes or a book falls down, I jump, you know, you have these bursts of tears every now and then just remembering what happened to the city, what happened to, you know, the rest of our lives, because this, I mean, the bombing is done, but it took with it a lot of our dreams, a lot of our past and our memories from the city. I haven't experienced a tragedy like this before, and I've been through a lot of tragedies before, but I never expected something like this to happen to me or to anyone I know. That's crazy. I'm here thinking, how far were you from the explosion? Well, the entire city was shaken. 50% of the explosion hit this, went out into the sea. And the other 50% hit the city. Just this morning, I was visiting my friend who lives uh, one block away. And I was standing at his balcony. And I could see the seaport. And it's a lot closer than, than I expected. And it just made sense why we felt the shake and had this kind of damage in our house as well. Although we were not too close. And I bet after this explosion, there's a lot more security and cops on the street, right? Uh, well, you'd think so. But unfortunately not. I mean... We live in probably one of the most corrupt countries in the world where corruption is, has become an art, uh, sadly. And it doesn't just go to a few people, you know, it's everyone within the system, police, army, president, ministers, parliament, judges, everyone is corrupt. When the thing happened, the first thing you could expect the next morning, I mean, we heard of all these aid coming to the country, you'd expect everyone to be on um you know full standby but they weren't it was the people in the streets it was me and my friends and other people who just came from all over the country holding their brooms and their shovels helping people out of their homes cleaning the streets i mean it was really beautiful to see something you know to see this solidarity among our people which we've always we've, which we've always known but it was it was really sad that you know our government is not there for us, even in this time where there was there should be no politics, but, you know, helping people out. But they weren't even a lot of the aid that was coming to the country via government um, government channels. A lot of it was stolen. Some of it was, you know, just taken to some political parties, people. And some of it is being sold in, you know, in supermarkets or in pharmacies, drugstores. This, you know, just makes you more angry that this accident or so they say so far that it is an accident i'm not sure nobody knows but this accident that cost the lives and you know shook the country 
and you're you're forbidding aid from coming in. I know there was uh, a lot of groups of rescuers coming from different countries that tried to go in to help with, you know, retrieving the missing people. They were stopped and they were forbidden to go into the seaport because someone didn't finish their cleanup of whatever they have been keeping there. And this, the sadder part is that every day we discover something new. I was just before we we had our, you know, we had our um, call, I, I was reading an article that they found treatments and medicine in the seaport that have expired 15 years ago, but they were still there to get into the Lebanese market somehow. And, you know, it just makes you more frustrated and, you know, more sad, very sad that, you know, we have, we have to face death and we have to pick up our dead as well. Ali, when did Lebanon begin to go downhill? What was what what was the turning point? Our country has been going through a lot. So we um, we've had our first big revolution when our currency started to lose its value back in October 17, uh, and there were, there's been a lot of movements on the streets, and we've been met with a lot of tear gas, a lot of bullets, a lot of people have been um, killed or injured. And then the coronavirus came in, in in line with our economic crisis because, I mean, our currency kept getting less valuable. And then you had the coronavirus and you had the lockdown. People couldn't work. They couldn't make money. And they, were, they didn't have any help or support from anyone, not the government, not religious people, no one. And whatever they used to buy for a small amount, they cannot afford anymore because their current, our currency is going worthless. Um, so it was this huge spiral of despair and people have been really getting upset. They've been trying to get down to the streets more, but we've been, you know, they, they just keep saying, oh, we have 400 new cases of coronavirus. You should just stay home. Another lockdown after lockdown. Obviously, nobody is social distancing right now, right? Sadly, no, because, you know, it's not your, I mean, people are trying to wear masks most of the time, but there's no social distancing. I mean, you know, you want to go and help people. You want to take people out. You're cleaning people's wounds. You, you're not thinking. Wow, it just seems like there's so much work to do in order to try and turn things around over there. Uh, tell us, what is your role in all of this chaos? So I work at uh, M Coalition. M Coalition is a network uh, for LGBT health uh, based in Beirut. And we work with, uh, within the Middle East and North African countries, Arabic-speaking countries. Um, and we're part of a larger organization called AFE, the Arab Foundation for Freedoms and Equality. And we also support the LGBTIQ community with trainings, with media, advocacy, and different kinds of issues. And we've been working for almost 10 years. We have a lot of partners in media and health with international organizations, local and regional. And we, we've we had uh, one local uh, project where we supported members of our local community where we are based, not just not the entire region. Um, and since the start of the coronavirus uh, pandemic, a lot of people have reached out to us because you know, they, they need, they've lost their livelihood and they need the support. Um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people in the LGBTIQ community, those specifically who are highly stigmatized and discriminated against, cannot always find, you know, the, the most stable jobs. Uh, a lot of trans people work in um, the beauty industry. There's a lot of our community also who, who are engaged in sex work. Um, and then when, when this happened, you know, when the coronavirus happened and there was a lockdown, people could not work anymore. They could not eat, they could not pay their rent. So we first started collecting donations from people around us and saying, you know, if you can help with anything, we'll come to your house, we'll collect it and 
we'll give people food. And this food program just kept going on, you know, and with high success. And one of the things that makes us sort of stand, uh, stand out is that we actually listen and we go to their homes and we sit with the people and we talk to them. So they feel that they're being listened to about their problems. So when this happened, we just mobilized, uh, you know, fundraisers and we talked to a lot of our donors to say, you know, we need your help. We need food. We need off-the-counter medicines, we need antidepressants. Most of us here in Lebanon are on antidepressants because, you know, <laughs> this country can drive you crazy uh, and, the, you know, the level of stress. So we're trying to provide all of this. You know, rent is harder to provide because prices are different and it's a very long process, but we're trying to support people as much as we can with whatever we can, even if sometimes something, you know, from our personal um, input and not, you know, donor base because, you know, sometimes you just go into someone's house and they tell you they need something that, you know, this donor does not allow you to buy. But you say, you know, I'm not going to wait for, you know, a donor or approval of someone for me to help. So to listen, to help, the, the destruction is enormous. The, what people have lost is, is a lot. And it's not just the physical stuff. The, the area that was mostly affected is called Ashrafiya. And Ashrafiya is the real heart of Beirut. Um, sadly, I would say seven out of eight of the venues that are LGBT friendly or are dedicated to LGBT people have been completely destroyed. This was a huge blow to our community because, you know, this is where we escape the world to come and be together. This is where we escape the stress of the country to come and dance and, you know, meet each other and just have a laugh. But now we've lost that too. Um, and I, I remember after after college, I worked in Ashrafi and a lot of the bars there. There's a huge bar district. Um, I worked there. I lived there. I had my friends there. And now it's all gone. It's like your memories, your past, your identity completely destroyed. And a lot of people don't want to rebuild anymore because they don't believe in this country anymore. And, you know, you wouldn't blame them. But they say before things change, we're not ready to rebuild or reopen and, you know, Right now, it's really just a huge sense of confusion, despair, anxiety everywhere. So, I mean, we're still just absorbing. Yeah, we haven't really gone to live with it because that's going to be a whole new level. I cannot even imagine the struggle everyone has to deal with under all those conditions that you are telling us about. Is uh, the hope for things to improve gone? How difficult is it to stay hopeful? Well, when when the riots started um, in October, after um, I think three months or so, the government resigned, and they this and you know one of the demands of the revolution was that we want um, a government of specialists, independent specialists who are able to you know lift this country from from the mess it's in. But as usual, it was just political parties, you know, dividing the seats and who gets what and who does what. And they came up with this, um, I'm sorry to say, a pathetic excuse of a government um, that after, after the explosion, we went to the streets on Saturday. So the explosion was on Tuesday. On Saturday, we went to the streets to protest what the government has done. And we were met with tear gas, with beating, with bullets, not just rubber bullets. There was live ammunition going on. And it was really just sad. And then yesterday, out of no reason, they, the government resigned. But it's not those people who are resigning or being put in that need to go. You know, the president needs to go. Um, he's a war criminal. He was, you know, 
leader of our army in the 80s. He done a lot of, um, he killed a lot of people mercilessly. And when there was a Syrian invasion, he left the country in his pajamas and left to France. I mean, there's no excuse what you can call a person like that except for a traitor. Um, and after a few years, he came back and his, you know, loyal, stupid subjects elected him as president. Uh, he needs to go. Um, Hezbollah needs to go. And a lot of the people who, are, who have been in control for the last 30 years, if not more, it's the same people sitting in the same seats for 30 years, causing the same kind of destruction and despair for everyone. These are the people that need to go first. And then you can start, you know, the accountability from everyone from that point downwards, because once the three, the big heads go, then you can start going and holding all the judges and the police accountable. But when the head of the snake is corrupt, the entire snake is going to, you know, <laughs> is corrupt as well. After everything that all of you are dealing with in Beirut, as an activist, what drives you to continue? How do you get the energy to stay in the fight? I, I've been through I've been through a lot in my life. I was um, a young, committed, uh, born again Christian, and really proud of it. I got raped at fourteen. I was kicked out of church because I was gay uh, at eighteen. I almost lost my dad. Um, and I was kicked out of my church. They took my university scholarship away from me. They took my teaching job away from me, all because I'm gay. And I just started from scratch. I worked a lot in bars and I worked in nightlife. And I got really emerged in that. Um, a few years after that, I got HIV. Uh, I engaged in sex work. I overdosed a few times. I went to rehab a few times. And it took a lot of work and a lot of hard work for me to really get somewhere where I'm um, when I'm sober, when I'm happy, my life is balanced, things are in order. And and from that point on, I just kept going, you know, upward. And for me, I feel because I know what it feels like to need things, to need food, to to be in desperate places. I can't feel that what I what I am and what I have today is is a lot of hard work and luck. And I just want to give this back to any way I can, because I remember in my life there were key people who who were in who just helped me in ways I couldn't imagine I remember I was in college my first year um I was studying cinema arts and I didn't have a laptop you know and for that kind of major is it's really difficult not to have your own laptop and I remember someone who I knew and we were you know not very close friends and when he knew about it he said you know what you deserve a laptop and I think you need one and he got me a very cool expensive laptop and that was a huge step for me in you know in everything and when i look back at these things i know how much the help of these people helped even if sometimes it was very little or big and i want to make this difference um and i think it's part of a guilt complex that i have <laughs> that i constantly feel that i'm not doing good enough and it's not for the sake of any religion i'm i i'm not you know worshiping or following anything right now i'm just focusing on humanity and keeping that alive in people. Today, after the explosion, it's a lot more difficult to have this energy. Um, to be honest, the first few days, I didn't have the energy to even leave my bed. But the only thing that helps me stay busy right now is helping people. Um, you know, part of it is when you, when you see the calamities around you, your concerns become minimal. Uh, but the main issue is that 
when I when I know that I can help someone and when I see that I really help someone, that for me gives me a sense of, you know, forget about countries or religions. It's just about people. And for me, my entire life has been about people. And this is this is what I care about. And, you know, there is a certain fulfillment we get to experience from helping others. And that, I believe, is what keeps us going. And thankfully, you're not alone. You do have a partner. Um, my partner wasn't, an, I mean, I wasn't, an, I was an activist, um, you know, in my own terms until I joined the organization. So I was in, I was working in TV production. I was a TV producer and then I got the opportunity and I decided to change. But the first six months of my life, I didn't know what I wanted to do in, my, in this new career because I didn't know what it, mean, what it meant to be an activist until I came out publicly about my HIV status and that's where my activism career really started. And my partner, he's an amazing graphic designer, and we we always needed this this kind of spirit in our in our organization. And um, one day I told them, you know, I my partner's a great graphic designer. Would you be interested in hiring him? They met him, they liked him, and he got the job. And it it kind of changes you when you're working with people, when you're working with the LGBT community. And even though you're not an activist, you become an activist. Um, and not only for LGBTIQ people, for issues on harassment, on child abuse, on bullying. It's you grow in a sense that you see things in a way you didn't see them before, and you find yourself becoming an activist for righteous causes. You know, I know, I know when I when we are down in the street and someone says something, you know, offensive or sexist or racist, we both look at each other and we're like, that was not okay, and. You know, it's like the activist is born with inside you without having to determine that I want to be an activist. Tell me that one moment that that you said that something happened, an experience happened that you said to yourself, this is why I'm doing this. But the moment I decided to really talk about my HIV status is the so the first six months I was working, I did. I had no idea what I was doing or what I was supposed to do. Um, but. The first time I went to, to the uh, first to my first international AIDS conference that was in Durban, South Africa, in 2016. I mean, I was there, and there were all these brilliant activists from all around the world. Most of them living with HIV, with big smiles on their face, you know, just going at it because they really want to make a difference. And I remember sitting at the opening ceremony, and there was the, a lot of amazing people speaking. And then came Charlize Theron. And, you know, I was, you know, like starstruck and she was talking and she said, you know, we have the capacity to eradicate HIV, but we don't because, and unfortunately in our societies, white is more important than black, men are more important than women, straight are more important than gay. And when she said those things, something sparked in my head and I was like, she's right. She's absolutely right. The reason why we're not stopping this already is because we are putting these obstacles in the system. Our, our cultures are toxic in these systems. And I went, I went back to my hotel room and I was thinking about all these people and, and I felt really small. And I thought, how can I do something different? How can I get my community, not only my, in my country, but in my region, to trust me? And it came to me that... May, well, maybe if they know who I really am, they would trust me. So I went on Facebook and I wrote this very long status about me being HIV positive and that I don't need anyone's support or I don't want people to become friends with me because they feel that they need to. I just want people to stop discriminating other people with HIV. And that that was the start of my real activism. That was um, it set me free from you know a lot of insecurities, a lot of concerns. 
Um, and it really made a lot of people trust me. I was a trusted resource everywhere I go. I go to the to meetings with the World Health Organization or the United Nations Program on AIDS, and everyone wants to listen to me because I'm someone who's affected, and I'm someone who can tell them what what I need and what is going on. And I think this is the most beautiful thing to have is the power of a voice where people would listen to you. And I only hope that I'm faithful to the voices of the community around me, that I'm able to portray their voice in the most honest way that I can possibly can. I, I, I remember this tweet coming from someone that says, you know, I don't approve of your homosexuality. I don't approve of your lifestyle. I don't approve of anything you do. But I do know that you are a courage, courageous man. And for that, I salute you. Um, and in, in, in my fight, it's, it is. It is. And hearing it from someone who does not approve is, is really brilliant because what I when I talk about things is not about me. It's not about just HIV or just being gay. It's about being different. You know, people with disabilities are, are treated differently. People who, um, you know, have different skin color or different facial features or any kind of features. I mean, people do not accept anything that is different. And this is our main problem. It's not just HIV itself or, you know, your sexuality it's a it's the whole concept of being different and this is what i call for accepting people who are different uh, by the sounds of it being gay in lebanon does not sound like a walk in the park what is it like being gay is criminalized by law um and unfortunately it comes from the french colonial law um because we were colonized by france in the 30s and 40s where it says any sexual practice that is uh, unnatural is punished by up to three years in prison. So they've always used this as an excuse to punish anyone who's doing anything that they thought was unnatural. Uh, in the last 10 years, there's been a huge step in, uh, in rulings where this law does not stand in the court of law because a lot of the judges are becoming more aware and they're uh, you know, calling for... Uh, you know, saying, you know, this is not unnatural to me. So this is, um, this case does not stand. I had a, a huge, a long journey with my family about my sexuality until they got to accept it. But for a lot of young people, for a lot of different people, they don't have, you know, they don't have this courage. Uh, and it's not that I blame them. Of course, I don't. What they're living, going through is not easy at all. And it doesn't just need courage. It needs a lot of, it needs a system that supports we have a good national AIDS program. They provide all the treatments for free, not the testing though, um, the, the regular checkups, but they do provide treatment. Um, and in recent years, we've seen a surge in, uh, in new cases, uh, mainly among gay men, um, you know, with, with the culture of chemsex and using drugs and people are not really that attentive to prevention um and prep is still not available it's not available yet they they had a, a a small study a few months ago i think it was for like four or five months um but unfortunately it got stopped because you know during lockdown they're encouraging people to not have sex uh to not meet up um and we found out by the end of the study that most of the prep was expired so it's just a circle of corruption life is about balance Whatever you do in excess without control, you're going to reap the results. So regardless of what it is, whether it's drugs or smoking, drinking or eating or whatever you overdo without control, you're going you're gonna to have consequences. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, with the stress that people live in, the, the sex and drug scene is, comes 
comes along together because people really want to escape and they end up escaping in, in the wrong way without the coping mechanisms. And that it was what, what leads them to these things. It's not that the, the condoms don't work or the prep don't work. It's really the escaping mechanism of people as being channeled in the wrong places. You know, within the chaos and the darkness, you are definitely the light that everyone needs over there. Uh, you give hope when it's needed, and that says so much about you. Now, can you give us any information on how we can help? afemena.org slash libeirut, L-I Beirut. afemena.org slash libeirut, L-I Beirut. You can read the story there. You can find out where to donate and how you can support and how you can put energy on your governments to support as well, whether it's with aid or with political pressure. You've, you, can, you can do that and you can be really helpful for us. That'll be great. I, I will share that. And Eli, I, I was wondering, did you ever think to yourself, I want to leave here, I want to go, go to the U.S. or any other part of the world? I've been thinking this for a very long time, and I've tried to leave a lot of times before. I, I have a family to support, uh, my parents, my sister, and I need, I need something good to be able to support them. I would not just leave everything to look after my own self. I have a lot of futures that are depending on me as well. Ellie, you are such a brave soul and the people in Lebanon are so lucky to have you there. I really applaud you for all that you're doing. It's truly inspiring and I really want to thank you for sharing your story and from the bottom of my heart I send you a lot of light and positive energy and hope that things turn around and you guys see some light at the end of the tunnel. Thank you Alison. Thank you for, for having me and for you know bringing out my voice to everyone. It's um, Thank you. I, I, I can only say that to you. Thank you so much for having me. Definitely. Thank you for sharing your story. And Eli, one more thing. Don't, Don't fall off the pod. Part. <laughs> awesome. That's a wrap. All right, everybody. Go right now to your app store and search for Pod With Me. We have our very own app. You can also check us out on social media. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode, and until next time, don't fall off the pod. Credit.